Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we're looking at the first reading for July 25th, 2021. And if you're looking for an episode on 2 Samuel 11, which is the Bathsheba and David story, take a look in our archive at firstreadingpodcast.com. We've got a really great episode on that passage with our special guest and dear friend, Dr. Carolee Folk. Uh, so I'd really recommend you checking that out. Since we've got that passage covered, Tim has prepared to guide us through the other first reading option for this week, 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44. It's like the other white meat, right? <laughs> right, right. All right. So tell us what you got, Tim. You bet. So this is from the track in the Revised Common Lectionary that pairs Old Testament and New Testament readings. So 2 Kings 4 is offered here as kind of, you know, background for the gospel reading, which is John 6, Jesus's miraculous feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, is the only miracle of Jesus's that's portrayed in all four gospels. Aha, there's one more as well. Really? Yeah, the resurrection. The resurrection. Okay, okay. <laughs> Cheap shot, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it seems like the gospel tradition of Jesus feeding crowds is probably built from this traditional story in 2 Kings about the prophet Elisha demonstrating in the Gospels that Jesus is empowered, just like the ancient wonder-working prophets, but even more spectacularly. But we want to encourage preachers and interpreters to also note what's unique in the Second Kings story and the kind of message that it offers all on its own. Because this story is more than just a precursor to Jesus, and it's about more than the ability of an important figure to do, you know, like, magic tricks. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. Okay, so I can't, I can't wait to hear this take on this pericope. But why don't you, why don't you back up just a little bit and maybe say a word or two about who Elisha is, especially because he and Elijah get confused pretty often. Yeah, yeah. Their names sound a little more similar in English than right. they do in Hebrew, right? Right. Eliyahu they're pretty and Elisha. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, great idea. Context. <laughs> The, the books of First and Second Kings focus for the most part on the succession of kings in Israel and Judah and on their faithfulness, or usually unfaithfulness, to God. <laughs> but there's a big chunk from about First Kings 17 all the way through Second Kings 9 that focuses on the stories of the prophet Elijah, Elijah and his successor, Elisha, Elisha uh, who represent sort of like divine opposition to the Omri dynasty of Israel, mm. speaking words of judgment, performing amazing miracles, and confronting the priests of Baal, who had the support of Ahab and his queen Jezebel. The little story that we're looking at today comes from near the beginning of Elisha's prophetic ministry, shortly after Elijah had been snatched up to heaven in a flaming chariot and a whirlwind. Mm. The other bit of context that's relevant here is the immediate context of our pericope. Uh, a paragraph earlier in chapter 4, verse 38, we're told that there was a famine in the land. And then that's followed by two stories related to miraculous feedings. And, and our story today is the second one. Since the land of Israel was dependent on brief annual season of rainfall for water, which sometimes came and other times didn't, Drought and famine were frequent there, uh, even though they were unpredictable. Mm. So this is important because it gives us a context to the miracle that happens in our story. So if we're comparing the Elisha story 
and Jesus's miraculous feeding in John 6, this is an important difference to note. The, the crisis in the gospel is that the crowds have followed Jesus to this remote location, right? And there's not enough food to sustain them. And that's why the disciples tell Jesus, send the crowds home so they can get food before our supplies run out. But here in Elisha's story, the scarcity has no clear solution. There's a famine in the land, and there's not enough food anywhere. Mm. Yeah, so there's nowhere for Elisha to send people to to get food. Exactly. And that context of true scarcity is essential to interpreting the story, I think. Now, the story itself is quite short. It's only a few verses. In fact, you might as well read it. Go for it. A man came from Baal Shlisha bringing food from the first fruits to the man of God, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Elisha said, give it to the people and let them eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred people? So he repeated, give it to the people and let them eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. He said it before them, they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Mm. There's, there's a lot packed into those few verses, though. Mm-hmm. The story starts with a gift, an offering. It comes from a man who brings bread and grain to Elisha. The man doesn't get a name in the story, but the, the narrator makes sure to mention his hometown, which was a city dedicated to the god Baal. Mm. One of Baal's primary responsibilities was to provide crops. Baal was a storm god. But he was proving to be unreliable. There was a famine. <laughs> yeah, not great for his resume. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't look good on a CV. <laughs> the man from Baal Shlisha brings a first fruits offering to Elisha, who represents Adonai, the God of Israel. And really, when you read between the lines here, this is a kind of subversive act, since Elisha was part of the opposition to the reigning dynasty. It's also significant that, it's, uh, that the text calls it a first fruits offering. That is, it wasn't an offering out of the man's own abundance. It was a gift that was given out of scarcity. Mm. What little he had, he brought to the prophet, trusting that God would provide more later. In response to that generosity, Elisha takes what was intended to supply him personally and instructs that it be distributed to the people. That's a problem because there's far less than enough to go around. His servant mentions 100 people, but that's probably like a round number, a way to say there's way too many of us here for this small offering to feed. But Elisha insists that the food be distributed because that was God's own instruction. Mm. And there's a little, um, this will be fun, there's a little Hebrew nugget here. Mm. So when Elisha says, thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left, in Hebrew, God's decree is only two words. They're, they're both uh, infinitive absolutes, if you remember, <laughs> listeners out there, to your Hebrew instruction. So hang on, that whole section, they shall eat and have some left, is just two Hebrew words? Just two Hebrew words. Wow. Achol vehoter. So those are, those are both infinitives. It's basically the word eating and the word having leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the words are trimmed down to their most basic form. Mm as a way to give them emphasis. It's kind of like using all caps, mm. as if God's saying, let me boil this down for you. Eat, have extra. <laughs> so part of the point of all this is to emphasize that the wonder that gets worked here is God's wonder. 
-hmm. It comes not because Elisha is really powerful himself, but it comes by the word of the Lord, by God's own decree. All Elisha does here is play the waiter. <laughs> God provides when Baal has not provided. And we should also note when the established monarchy in Israel has not provided for the needs of the people. But God's provision here isn't unilateral. It involves the prophet, and it involves a man from Baal Shlisha taking the risk to, to act with generosity in obedience to God's decree, even when the external circumstances would call not for generosity, but for self-preservation. Do I detect a sermon coming here? <laughs> yeah, yep, definitely. <laughs> there's, there's a model of faith here that I think we're meant to learn from. But you know, before I give my preaching angle on this, I think there are a couple pitfalls that we should mention. <laughs> Could one of those be jumping too quickly to Jesus here? Yes, yes, that is definitely one of them. I mean, I, I think the gospel invites a conversation with this passage, mm -hmm. so it's not wrong to have that conversation and to look at the links between these two miraculous feedings. But you're right, we don't want to lose the uniqueness of this Elisha story and the message that it's communicating on its own terms. Mm -hmm. the, the other sort of pitfall that I'm thinking of, though, has to do with how preachers deal with the miraculous multiplication of food in this story. Mm -hmm. I think... This is just my take, but I think something's lost when preachers take something presented in the biblical narrative as uh, supernatural and reduce it down to being just sort of like a simple metaphor. Mm, yeah. Like saying, God provides when we share with one another. <laughs> mm -hmm. In fact, I don't know about you, Rachel, but I've heard several sermons on Jesus's feeding of the 5,000 that truly insist that when the disciples started handing out the loaves and fish from the boy... The gathered crowd got swept up in the generosity and started pulling sack lunches out of their backpacks yeah. to share around. And that's how there was enough food for everyone and more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is which is kind of like a modernist midrash yeah. that that tidies everything supernatural up in the story. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, I don't think that we're meant to expect that whenever we're hungry, we should plan for God to miraculously multiply our food. <laughs> Or that we should respond to the needs around us with, you know, prayer and happy thoughts mm -hmm. with the idea that if, if God wants to meet people's needs, God's powerful, God can do it. Mm -hmm. so, so in a way, there's these twin pitfalls of writing God out of the story on the one side or tilting toward presumption on the other. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Twin pitfalls, like you said. Do you, do you see kind of a uh, path to walk through them or maybe even just a third way around them that the, the dichotomy doesn't? lead a bit for us to consider? Yeah, I mean, I've got an idea. Mm. I mean, my instinct is to try to hear this story through the voices of those who told it, mm. of people who had experienced profound loss and national exile, looking back on their story with, uh, with like a, if only we had trusted God sort of viewpoint. Mm. They felt that their leaders had been too pragmatic, had, had tried to work the geopolitical system to their own advantage, and had neglected loyal trusting God to be their provider. Mm. So I think this story represents the kind of thing, looking back, that they believed God was actually capable of doing, if only God had been trusted. Mm. And whether God actually multiplied the loaves in this particular historical moment, or whether this is a fictionalized account is not actually the point. The theological assessment that this is the kind of thing that God is capable of doing 
envisions an economy of abundance where generosity is possible even in the midst of scarcity, when scarcity and fragility is the, the practical context. God's ability to provide means that we can share the little that we have, you know, whether or not the loaves multiply in our particular circumstance. Mm. And really, that's the preaching angle that I would take here, that a sort of me-first, us-first approach is not the typical biblical recommendation. (laughs) God's call to consider others first stands even in times of scarcity. Mm. I can afford to seek the flourishing of others because God can provide for my needs, whether that provision comes in material form or manifests itself in some other way. In any case, the witness of Scripture is that God can be trusted. Yeah. Oh, and, and one last thing I wanted to say here. I would resist the temptation to use this passage as a sort of what we would, like a stewardship message <laughs> that's, that's meant to encourage people to increase their giving. <laughs> but Tim, it's budgeting season. It's time for the tithing sermons, right? I know, I know. But you know, the point of this story is not to get poor members of your church to put more on the plate. Hmm. I think actually the message of the story is applicable to things like setting the church budget or Mm. deciding on programming for the next season or preaching about your church's vision for ministry. Mm. Because the point here is that your church can afford to spend itself prioritizing the good of the community to which you've been called rather than simply seeking self-preservation. Because God's not limited to the pragmatism of an us-first type of economy. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of God not being limited to a me first or to an us first. It's not that God doesn't want to take care of us in our needs, but it's almost like God's vision for what can be is so much bigger. And perhaps that God can see the ways that our needs are inextricably linked to other people's needs as well, and vice versa. So that to take care of us, we have to be taking care of the people around us too. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really nice, Tim. Mm-hmm. And it's worth it. It's worth it to take the risks of generosity, Yeah. even when there's no guarantee that your needs are going to be met in a material way. Knowing that God is trustworthy and able to care for you gives you this freedom to be able to reach out to others with, mm. with generosity and with abandon. That'd be a great sermon title, The Risks of Generosity or even The Freedom of Generosity, too. Mm-hmm. I- I do think it's worth saying that this text, of course, reads slightly differently if you are preaching to an oppressed community or to an impoverished community or to a place where um, the message, as you were saying, as you were alluding to, should not be deny your self-care needs so that you can give to the church or whatever it might be. That would be obviously a twisting of this text that that Mm -hmm. the text is not trying to say. Yeah. Well, great work, Tim. Uh, Preachers, I hope you take up this text and uh, preach what it's like to have um, abundance even when we see scarcity. I think that that's a message that people are really longing for. If you're interested in more, check us out, as always, at firstreadingpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook as well. A big thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary for a grant that's supporting us. And if you've got feedback for us, just shoot us a message on our Facebook site or on our website. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy preaching. <laughs>